Amen. You guys may be seated this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful that you would join us today. I know it's becoming a beautiful day, and there are many things you could do, but you chose to be here, and I'm thankful for that. A few things as we begin our time of worshiping through the reading of the Word. Uh, First and foremost, I want to highlight your ability to give. Uh, We would typically take our tithes and offerings during this time, but Well, you've heard of this thing called COVID over the last few years. If you'd like to give, you can give online. You can give through scanning this QR code. You can even text it in. You can give as you exit, et cetera. Many avenues to give. Here's why that's important. Not because we want your money. We don't care about that. But this is you getting the ability to support what God's doing and supporting the ministries of Holmes Avenue. Because of you giving, we get to see people see their lives changed by the gospel because we're able to do our various ministry efforts. So thank you for giving, and I want to draw your attention to a special opportunity to give here in the coming weeks. As you know, we're taking a mission team down to Puerto Rico. Myself and six other people are going. It's a relatively inexpensive trip as mission trips grow. About $1,100 is going to be our final note per person. But I do want to encourage you guys, if you would like to give and give beyond what you're already giving, give towards the Puerto Rico mission trip to help support the men and women who are going. We'll have some fundraising opportunities as well, some other ways for you to give. But I simply want to encourage you that if you believe in what God is doing here at Holmes Avenue, this is an avenue for you to support and to encourage those who are living life on mission together for Jesus. So just a note, I want to encourage you to give as you're able to. Now, as we move into our study of God's Word today, we're looking at Acts chapter 12, and you'll notice this is the entire chapter, Acts chapter 12, and we're looking at persecution and God's faithfulness in the midst of this. Persecution and God's faithfulness. As we look at this chapter, we're going to encounter further persecution of the local church. If you remember earlier on in the book of Acts, as the church began to grow and began to see people respond to the good news of the gospel, that brought persecution upon them. Saul was one of the earliest leaders of this persecution, and by this point, Saul has been converted, and he's now a member of a local church leading churches. But persecution caused the church to scatter and to go forth to proclaim the good news of the gospel, first to the scattered Jews and then to the Gentiles. And now we see a further up-rampening of persecution within the local church. And as we study church history, as we look at the life of the local church, we see that there are seasons of increased persecution throughout the life of the church. And chapter 12 gives us a season of increased persecution. Now, it's always challenging within our context to talk about persecution. If we can just be honest with one another as we're looking at this passage today. One of the things we recognize that here in America, though we have a culture that is moderately hostile to Christianity, the most persecution that we can experience today, typically within our culture, is that people don't want to hear what we believe in. That they'll end the conversation when we're interacting with them over spiritual things. At worst, you might get a harsh few words of, leave me alone, I don't want to talk about this. That for us, this is perhaps the extent of what we face in terms of persecution. And to be fair, I would hesitate to even label that as persecution within our context. When we look at Christians around the world, we see that there are churches, there are Christians that are encountering real persecution and difficulty. 
Just take a few short months ago as U.S. forces completely withdrew from Afghanistan and the impact that that has had on the local church. You see, the Taliban are a religious extremist group that are now in authority and power in the country in Afghanistan. And you have many Christians who were either unable to leave Afghanistan or willingly chose to stay in the midst of the coming persecution. And over the last few months, we've heard story after story of persecution coming upon Christians within Afghanistan. We've heard story after story of people losing their lives for being willing to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has saved their soul. My friends, what we see is real persecution around the world. And in the midst of persecution, what every one of us would be asking is, is this worth it? Is it worth potentially losing our life in the midst of this difficulty? Is God indeed who he says he is? And is he going to be faithful to affirm all the promises that he has made? Are we here willing to risk all so that Jesus might have his name proclaimed a little bit louder in a lost and dying world? You see, the reality is, as we look at this idea of persecution, is that it's a foreign concept to us. Yet, it's a reality that many of our brothers and sisters, not only around the world, but throughout church history, have lived under the threat and challenge of persecution. Now, as we look at this section of Scripture, we have to be aware of the reality that though we do not experience persecution at this level, Though we may never experience persecution of this level within our context, there are still things that we can learn from and understand from the example of Christians that have gone before us. And so today, as we look at chapter 12, what I hope and what I pray is that as we study this section of Scripture, that we would understand some things about our own lives and how we can stand firm in the midst of the incoming pressure we experience in our lives and in our world. Now, this is a full chapter, 25 verses, and typically we would stand for the reading of God's Word, but since it's so long and it's going to take me a few minutes, uh, you're not going to stand. I'm actually just going to read it as I get into the section so that we can best honor your time and your knees, okay? Now, if you would, we'll look into our first point, which is going to be looking at persecution and trials. I'll read verses 1 through 5 for us. Uh, The text will be on the screen, and you can follow along with us as well. Beginning in verse 1, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, attending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So our first point here is persecution and trials. And as we enter into this story in chapter 12, we come upon this scene of of Herod beginning to move in violent action against the church in Jerusalem. Now you see this reference to Herod the king, and it seems familiar to you right off the bat. Now this is not the Herod that we've seen just a few short weeks ago in the book of Luke. As we think back upon our time in the scriptures, 
we see in many times in the ancient world that they use names repeatedly. Ancestor after ancestors using the same name. And the first Herod we encountered in the Bible, he's the one in the book of Luke that orders the death of the male babies around the time of Jesus' birth. He's responding to a prophecy. That Herod is actually an ancestor of this Herod. We're not sure about the history as we look at it. It's either his father or his uncle. We're not really sure about some of that. The, the, the culture didn't really address some of that. It wasn't a concern for historians. But this Herod, we know, is a member of the same family. He's now ruling over Israel. And it's important to understand a little bit about this Herod and just how he responded. Historically, this Herod is a very two-faced ruler that he's happy to say one thing to this crowd and another thing to this crowd. You see, when he was with the Romans, he was all about Rome and its empire. All hail Caesar, all hail the emperor. Rome is the center of my existence. Yet when he's with the Jews, he is a Jew full force that he is worshiping the Lord, that he is offering sacrifices in the temple. On holy days, you can find him in his royal robes, right in the temple courts. We know historically that he wasn't a very faithful man. Um, That's to his wife or to the local church. And this was essentially what we understand, a thing for show. Herod liked power. Now, that's important because we understand from this context that he was willing to do anything to keep his power and popularity with both Rome and Israel. This leads us to our current situation here in the passage. We're not really sure what led to this moment of increased persecution. We're not sure about the surrounding context of how we got here where Herod decided that it was time to take violent action against some members of the church. But he begins to do so. Now, we understand as we read this that he's killing and otherwise physically harming some of the Jewish Christians. And as we get into verses 2 and 3, we encounter the first of the apostles to be martyred, James, the brother of John. See, James is put to death by a sword, and you read that, and that's just a fun fact, perhaps. But it's important because Herod is sending a message Within the Jewish culture, it's important because only murderers and apostates would be killed by swords. That is, people who have been found guilty of sin against either the faith or against their fellow man. Those are the only ones who could be condemned and killed by a sword. And so ultimately, we believe historically this is a political move by Herod. This is Herod trying to shore up his popularity amongst the Jewish people. Must be midterm season, and he says, if I kill a few Christians, they'll, of course, want to put me back into power. Now, not only have we got James here who's been murdered, who's been martyred by Herod, we now see that Peter has been arrested. Now, if you are a part of the local church in Jerusalem at this time, this is probably a pretty dark day. You've seen James, one of the apostles who's been murdered, You've seen Peter being arrested, and you can perhaps imagine the fear that would be present for the rest of the church, simply asking this question, will I be next? Will they come to my door, and will they drag me away? Now, as we consider what that looks like, verses 4 and 5 tell us a little bit about Peter's fate here and about the church's response. 
You see, first, we see that Peter is in prison and guarded by many soldiers. The numbers say that it's probably about 16 to 20 soldiers. Herod was quite concerned about Peter escaping. He's set to be executed after the Passover, uh, during the Holy Weeks and these festivals in the culture. Uh, You cannot execute someone during God's Holy Week, is essentially the Jewish rule. And so in that time, they've said it, that after Passover is done with, they'll execute him the next morning. We have the church here, though, that is left in a situation where there is nothing that they can do. That truly, they are absolutely powerless before Herod's corruption and authority. Who do you appeal to? Herod is the ruler both from Rome and by the Jewish people. Who do you appeal to? Where do you go? What do you do? It would seem that Herod was concerned that they might violently rise against him because he put such a heavy guard upon Peter. But what can the church do? What is it they have the ability to do? If they were like us, perhaps many things run through their mind of maybe we should rebel. Maybe we should fight against this. Maybe we should leave. Peter's gone, obviously. He'll be dead by sunrise. Maybe we should go. Maybe we should recant our faith. Maybe we should tell them we don't worship this Jesus anymore. What can they do? Well, we see in verse 5 that they do the only thing they have the ability to do, which is they commit themselves to earnest prayer. You see, recognizing that they are powerless before Herod, recognizing that they are impotent before his power and authority, they turn to the one who has all power and authority for help. You see, the position of the church in this passage, I think, is one that is not only foreign, but brings some discomfort to us. You know, in this moment, they are helpless. They're powerless beyond being able to appeal directly to God himself. And that's not a comfortable position for us as people. That if we're honest with one another, when we interact with people and they're experiencing times of grief and difficulty, we tend to ask them, you know, what can I do for you? Is there anything I can help you with right now? And what tends to be the response we receive? Well, we need you to pray for us. And then what is the next word that's usually out of our mouth in a good intention, I think? Well, is there anything else that I can do for you? Not only are we taking for granted the power of prayer, but we're saying that I feel like I need to actually do something. As if prayer's not doing something, I feel like there's something I need to do. You need this mediocre casserole that I've made, right? Like, no, no, leave it to prayer, right? Like, we don't need your casserole, it's fine. But we encounter situations and we feel the same way as the church does. We hit these difficult situations and we have nowhere to go but upward in prayer. You felt this when you've had a loved one who is sick that you can't help or do anything for. When you're in difficult situations where things are completely out of your control. When you don't have the answers for difficult questions. When you encounter real evil and sinfulness in this world. You have felt 
that weight of being completely powerless and unable to do anything. You see, we feel powerless when we're unable to do anything beyond prayer. We feel powerless when we're unable to do anything beyond pray to the God of the universe. We feel that way because we still, in our sinful flesh, think that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. One more good decision, one run of luck, and we can make this work. Yet the church's response is not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's not to rebel and take things in their own hands. It's not to do anything but to go to the sovereign king of the universe and say, Lord, you are the only one that can make this right. You are the only one that has the answers we need. You are the only one that can do anything about this. Now to the world, sometimes to us, that looks frankly ridiculous, right? By this point, the church is many thousands of people. If they were to swarm the prison, they could easily take Peter. Yet we have a group of believers here who would commit themselves to pray during oppression and trials. You see, I think we find a truth here that in these moments as believers where we are at the end of our rope and we have nothing more we can offer, we encounter the true power of God. We encounter the true power of God in humbly seeking Him and letting Him move in the midst of our circumstances. Now, I have to say that even in the midst of that, it doesn't mean that God will always make things right, but it does mean that he will be present in the midst of our difficulty and trials. You see, to quote Warren Wearsby, it is good to know that no matter how difficult the trials or how disappointing the news, God is still on the throne and has everything under control. We may not understand his ways, but we know his sovereign will is best. That's a hard truth to consider in the midst of difficulty and trials and persecution, yet it's one that, referencing our brothers and sisters around the world, that they stand firm in. Even look at what the church in the Ukraine is doing right now. As Ukraine is in the middle of a war against tyranny and oppression, the church did not leave. The church chose to stay in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of the hardest time that any of us could fathom. The church chose to stay so that people might see, hear, and respond to the good news of the gospel. In what time would you need more good news than in the middle of a war? Yet we see that many Christians in places like Afghanistan, in Ukraine, and other areas of conflict have chosen to submit their will to the God of the universe saying that I don't know that all things will work out, but what I do know is that you are in control. You see, this is the great power we encounter in moments of being at the end of our rope we are able to then draw from the deep well of love and affection that the Lord of the universe offers to us. 
we are able to then see his majesty on full display. When there is not a way for us, he would make a way. And so in the midst of persecution and trials, we encounter the true power and majesty of God. The church has committed themselves to prayer. They've chosen to walk their path of seeing God and only God move and do something here. Well, what's the outcome? What happens? Look with me at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, but they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now here in this section, we pick up on this story of unexpected deliverance and answered prayers. You see, we encounter Peter here, and God does something that we would have not seen coming if it were our own story. But picking up here in verse 6, we see that we've hit the day that Herod has slated Peter to die. It's right after the Passover, and Peter's under very heavy guard. He's obviously concerned about Peter escaping from this. He's got four soldiers at a time that are guarding him, taking a couple of hours on their shifts. He's actually chained between two of them. I mean, this is a challenge to get out of this. And yet, in the midst of this, we see Peter sleeping. Peter was the goofy guy in Jesus' youth group who had a little bit of a temper, who was kind of impatient. He cut off a guy's ear once. It was a horrible, terrible moment. Yet, in the midst of this, Peter is sleeping. To be fair, if it were you or I, and we're approaching our time of a slated execution, we might be a bit nervous, shall you say. 
maybe uh, a wide awake. But no, Peter is asleep. In fact, he's in such a heavy, restful sleep that when the angel appears in a moment, not only does this light appearing in the cell not wake him, but the angel, I imagine, has to kick him. Get up, kid, get up. He's sleeping comfortably. Take what you will from that, but I think it's an interesting note to look at Peter's confidence in not only his eternal destiny, but in what the Lord might choose to do today. Now we see this angel appear here in verses 7 and 8, and this bright light occurs, and he tells, he wakes Peter up, you know, kicks him in the side, and says, get up. He unlocks his chains without a key and says, now you've got to get moving. Now Peter gets up, wraps his cloak around himself, and casually strolls out of the prison. I just want you to picture this. Peter's walking out this prison, hair a little messed up, sandals on the wrong feet, shirt on backwards, wondering where they left the coffee maker and just stumbling out the door of this prison. He's public enemy number one at this moment. He is the guy that they're slating to kill right now. And he's walking out of this prison. No wonder he thinks this is a vision or a dream, right? This is something that could only happen in our imaginations. It's only by verse 10 that Peter encounters, has woken up enough perhaps, he's encountering what he's doing and he's recognizing that this is not a dream. That I'm actually getting out of here. And then we hit verse 11. Peter's fully come to his senses and he offers praise and worship to the Lord. You see, he's fully aware that only God himself could have led him out of this prison and into freedom. And so Peter is here, he's a free man, and he's celebrating the goodness of God. And what does he do? Well, he decides that he must go tell the church of what's been done. So he heads over to his good friend John Mark's house. Now, if you don't know who John Mark is, John Mark has appeared several times in our story in the book of Acts. John Mark is uh, more commonly known as Mark. He is the writer of the New Testament book, Mark. And from what we know about his history, we don't know a little bit, but his mother seems to be a believer and she's been a strong supporter of the local church that uh, historically we actually believe that she was very wealthy and she actually funded many of the church's ministries and efforts very early on. In fact, she's such a generous person. She's just a key part of the church that the upper room they gathered in in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we believe that that was at John Mark's house, like in the frog above the garage, right? Like they're hanging out, all 120 of them, celebrating what God is doing. Now, Peter heads over there, and we've got this aside from Luke that says that people have gathered together there to pray. And in verse 13, he gets there and he knocks on a door and this little servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door and she answers and she recognizes who Peter is. She's seen him. She knows his voice. And she sprints back in and she proclaims to the gathered crowd that Peter has arrived. Well, the crowd in the house looks at her and goes, to paraphrase, you're crazy. You're crazy. There's no way Peter can be here. She continues persistently saying, he's here, he's here, I've seen him, I've heard him. And of course, the next logical thing they go to is not that Peter's really here, but, well, his ghost must be here. 
Herod must have killed him. He's dead. His ghost has come to haunt us. We've done terrible things. We should have listened. We should have freed him. This is going to end poorly. I just have this picture of this little girl, like about Molly's age, you know, just saying, he's here, Peter's here. And sometimes you just don't listen to the little kids. There's no way that Peter can be here is what they're saying. Yet, they finally go to the gate because they hear this persistent knocking. They, they, we're trying to pray. Will you leave us alone? And so they go to see what the matter is. And there stands Peter. Cold, got his sandals on the right feet, wondering what took them so long. And so they begin to celebrate because Peter is freed, right? Peter is out of prison. He will no longer be killed for this crime of following Jesus. He begins to share his story of how God freed him and he asks them to share it with the church and with with James, and then he leads, leaves from there to head somewhere else. He's a wanted man. He's got to get out of town. He's going somewhere. Just as a note, this James that he has, he encourages them to share this with. Here we saw James, the brother of John, was killed earlier, right? This James is James, the brother of Jesus. You know, they use names very frequently throughout this time. You know, very similar names, similar people, but This James is the brother of Jesus, and we actually encounter him a little bit more extensively later on in the book of Acts. Uh, We actually think this is the James that wrote the book of James, and so we'll see some more from him shortly. Now, as you can imagine, there was a little bit of turmoil uh, when they found out that Peter was gone, right? Herod begins to search for them, and the guards are in trouble here. And when they can't find him, when they can't find Peter, they begin to move towards examining the guards. Maybe one of them let them out. And they hear their story and think, rightfully so, you didn't see him walk past you. You guys clearly are incompetent guards. And just like Darth Vader, with all of his officers, they killed them. They're no longer necessary and helpful. Now, We've got this whole summary story of Peter miraculously exiting the prison, of him being freed of this divine move from God. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with persecution? What does that have to do with you and I today? How do we respond to this? Well, ultimately, I believe that as we encounter this unexpected deliverance, these answered prayers is that we see the true power that prayer has. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, has said of this story, Yes, it is true that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but first it was prayer that fetched the angel. Though the church was physically powerless, they didn't need to be strong to see Peter rescued. They merely needed to be faithful in prayer to see Peter rescued and freed. You see, the weight of this that we should feel, the thing that we have to ask ourselves is that are we earnestly devoting ourselves to prayer so that the Lord might move in a miraculous way, in a way that only He could receive glory and honor in our lives for? I think one of the truths that we would if we're honest, we would confess is that we are impatient people. 
that we live in a culture where we can get things within minutes, right? Like if you go on Amazon right now, you can order what feels like half the site and have it here tomorrow. I mean, that is how quick things move. You know, we just bought sofas this week, new sofas in our house, and they're going to be here this week. I mean, this is how quick our culture moves, that things go quickly. What seems like it's important is no longer important in five minutes. We are impatient people. Do you know how I know this? Let's get all of us back on dial-up and we will riot. None of you will live through the dial-up era again because it was painful and miserable. All you remember is that coming at you and you're just, I'm taking forever, I can't handle this. When our web pages won't load on our phone, what are we doing? We're refreshing and seeing what the problem is. We're impatient. We have a short view of things. I would just simply ask you, do you let that impatience bleed over into your prayer life? How many of us have been praying for things for what feels like years and we haven't seen an answer yet? How many of us have been praying for deliverance from things and we haven't seen the end? How many of us have been praying fervently for something and we've received nothing? You see, we're impatient because we're short-sighted people. Just like the church in this section of Scripture, though they were faithful to pray, they were short-sighted when God gave them an answer. This couldn't be Peter. It's his ghost. Rather than address the reality that the Lord answered their prayers immediately. You see, we're impatient And we also think we know better than the Lord. We tend to look for what our definition of an answered prayer is versus what the Lord's definition of an answered prayer is. The truth is that for most of us, we haven't encountered enough difficulty in our lives to be faithful and consistent with asking the Lord to move in our lives. On one hand, that's a reason to rejoice because the Lord has been gracious to us that we would not encounter that much hardship. Yet it's another thing to wonder over of where would I be if I were to hit some hard times? Who would I be if I were to hit some difficulties? It's a question that we must ask, we must wrestle with. It's one that's important to remember. It's one that we must consider about our prayer life, about ourselves. Now, in this moment, the church has been found a bit wanting, yet all has ended well. But our story's not over. Our story's not over because we see, yet again, God do something that only He can do. We see God do something that only he could receive honor for, that he could receive glory for. And that's because we see in the last section, we see divine judgment and hope enter the picture. Look at verse 20. 
Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we end our time with a message of divine judgment and hope from God. See, Herod appears again here, and chronologically, this is probably taking place a few months or maybe even a year or so later from this immediate moment of Peter escaping. But Luke is making this connection for us. He's including it right here because he wants us to make a connection that God in his sovereignty has seen the difficulty that his people have gone through. He has seen the trials they've experienced and he is not silent. Not only has he rescued Peter, but he will have his final say over Herod and Herod's sin shortly. Now we see Herod here and he's mediating in a conflict between two cities, two countries as it's termed. And Herod, ever the glory hog, chose to host this, this accord, this meeting on a holy festival. This isn't a holy festival for the Jews. This is a holy day for the Roman Empire. This is a festival in honor of Caesar, celebrating the legacy that he has offered to Rome. Now, how do we know that? Well, we actually have an account uh, by this man named Josephus. He's an historian of this era. And Josephus wrote extensively, not only about Jesus, but about what the Roman Empire and the culture did within Jerusalem. What did this look like? He was a, a firsthand account, if you will, of this time. Now, Josephus wrote about Herod's death, and he gave us some of this further detail. He goes into extensive detail about Herod's death, but We'll get to that in a moment. You see, Herod is praised by the gathered people for the words that he said, for the things that he's putting in front of them. And they proclaim that he's a god, this lowercase g god, that he is a part of the pantheon of the Roman gods. And the very next verse tells us that an angel struck him down. You see, Josephus gives us a little bit more detail about his death. And Josephus would have us see that not only does he died, but it's a long, agonizing, painful death. That as he finishes his speech and the people offer this praise, Josephus says that Herod falls to the ground screaming in pain. They take him back to his quarters and he moans and cries in pain for five days until he passes. There's a great deal more he talks about there in terms of a prophecy that was given to him and, and all of this, just historically looking at the picture. But we see that Herod is now dead and we see that there is a direct connection Luke wants us to make with Herod's death and his sinful acts throughout this time. Yet in the midst of this, we also encounter hope because Herod is dead and in the midst of this, the persecution is waning. There is less persecution, less difficulty and strife upon the church. 
And in the midst of that, the church begins to flourish yet again. We see that it says that the Word of God, used commonly to refer to the church in the book of Acts, the Word of God is increasing and multiplying. Not only that, but we have Barnabas and Saul coming into the picture, Saul whom we know as Paul. They come into the story and they've come to Jerusalem to offer some gifts, a sacrifice that has been taken by the people of the surrounding areas to offer in the midst of famine and difficulty. They've come to relieve their burden and hardship. As if that's not enough, we, in the next chapter, we see this transition from looking at the church in Jerusalem to now we begin following Paul and his missionary journeys. And we go from Peter, who's perhaps the main character of the first few chapters, to now we follow Paul. and We have this focus on the Gentile church. We have this focus on these people who were left out of the covenant, yet are now being grafted in to the family. You see, we end with this hopeful note simply because God has made things right on this moment on this earth. Yet for us, it's easy to say that of course they can end it with hope because everything worked out well. Everything worked out the way they wanted it. Herod is no longer persecuting them. Peter's still alive. The famine is not a problem because we have food. Things are good and it's easy to offer praise in the midst of things being good. Yet if we take ourselves back to that cell where Peter is on the eve of his execution, as he's awaiting his death, he sleeps soundly because even in that moment, things are still good. You see, I think Peter slept soundly because he had hope. He had hope not that he was going to get everything he prayed for. He had hope not because he was going to get everything he wanted. He had hope not because he thought that he was going to walk out that cell to freedom. He had hope because he knew that whether he were to live or die, God would still be on the throne. And when he entered into the heavenly gates, he would be greeted with a well done, my faithful servant. That his hope was not that things would work out well in this life, but that he was assured that things would end well in the next. You see, my friends, that is the hope that anchors us in the midst of persecution, of difficulty, of trials and hardship. And that's the hope that you can only find through trust in Jesus. That's the hope that you can only find by looking to Jesus, by repenting of your sins, turning away from them, calling out to the God of the universe saying, I am in need of redemption and salvation. That's the hope that can be found by acknowledging the shed blood of Christ, by saying that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's the hope that's offered to you and I today. That's the hope that is available for you and I. If only we would lay down our sinful burdens and cry out to the God of the universe, I want to be free. I ask you this. Do you have this hope? Do you know 
the one who gives hope. Today you have an opportunity to not only meet him, but proclaim the goodness of that hope. Here in the next few minutes, we'll have a time of silent prayer where you can go to the Lord yourself. You can ask him to move in your life, to offer you grace and mercy, to find forgiveness for your sins, to find and receive this hope. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll pray for us. And what I'll be praying is that the Lord would move in every man, woman, and child's heart and life today. That no matter where you are, you would experience the goodness of our God. And then we'll conclude with a song celebrating quite literally the goodness of God and His grace and mercy. And it's my prayer that you sing this not just by rote or action, but truly having experienced the goodness of God. Perhaps you're here and you say that I'd like to talk to someone about these things, or maybe I just have questions. You can speak to me during this time of worship after the service. I'll be right here. would love to hear what God's doing in your life and to celebrate with you, to pray with you. If you're watching online or maybe you don't want to talk to me today, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact. That'll let us know that you've put in some information and we'll follow up with you and talk about what God's doing in your life. But today, we have an opportunity to respond to this hope. And it's my prayer that you would respond proclaiming the name of Jesus above all names. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful that in the midst of difficulty, in the middle of our trials and our hardships, when it feels like the waves are crashing over us, Lord, we have an anchor in the midst of the storm. We have a rock to cling to, a firm foundation, one that will never be washed away. And Lord, it is you we cry out to in need of hope, in need of redemption and forgiveness, in need of assurance of who you are and what you are doing in our lives and in our world. Father, we ask you to shower us with your grace and mercy. Let us experience your presence. Let us feel who you are. Let us see the majesty of your great name. Would you, in your kindness, move inside our hearts to lead us to repentance, to confess our sins to one another, to confess our sins to you, Lord, that we could look upon you in your full glory and simply say, I need you to forgive me. That we could experience salvation in this life, that we could have a hope in the midst of our storm. Father, is our prayer that in the middle of this
turmoil, the stormy sea that pushes around, pushes around in this life. That we would, as Charles Spurgeon said, that we would learn to kiss the rock of ages that the storm pushes us upon. That when we are thrown in this trials and tribulations and we're pushed to go nowhere else but you, when you're the only thing we can go to, Lord, I pray that that is where we experience your presence, we experience your joy, and we find trust and rest in you. Lord, be with us today. Let us experience your presence. And may the gathered church celebrate your great name by proclaiming the goodness of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.